Hi, friends. Welcome to another edition of She Said, She Said podcast. Here, you'll find tools, advice, and perspective to help you be the best version of you. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've spent my entire career as an advocate, connector, and master communicator at the highest levels of government and corporate America. I'm also a mom and a wife in a dual career household. Like so many of you, I wear a lot of hats. With She Said, She Said podcast, I'm sharing what I've learned over the course of my career, and I'm drawing additional perspective from a broad range of women whose stories hold keys to addressing very common challenges. It's awesome to find community and support, and that includes getting a positive dose of inspiration each week, which I think you'll find here. Just like you, I struggle. But the more I work on me, the better I understand how to leverage my best parts, even as I continue to grow and evolve. It's really learning to understand and to use your own God-given gifts to bring your unique brand of magic to the world. Stick around. I think you'll find this investment in yourself worth your time. My guest today is the amazing Bonnie Glick. Bonnie is an American diplomat and businesswoman who serves as the Deputy Administrator for the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. Bonnie worked for 12 years as a Foreign Service Officer at the U.S. Department of State. She later worked for IBM as a Global Account Executive, where she authored three patents. She served as Deputy Secretary of the Maryland Department of Aging, under Governor Larry Hogan. She speaks seven languages, including English. She's seen parts of the world that enabled her to develop a worldview that she carries with her today as she thinks about the importance of USAID. We'll talk to Bonnie about how her agency, USAID, has had to pivot during COVID and also about her tremendous career and what she's learned that can benefit the rest of us. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Bonnie Glick, welcome to She Said, She Said. Laura, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. I suppose I should ask you, should I call you deputy administrator or is Bonnie okay? Call me Bonnie, please. I'm in the office just because it keeps me out of trouble and out of the cookie jar at home. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. Bonnie and I were talking that uh, avoiding snacks at home has been really, really challenging during COVID. So I'm jealous that Bonnie has an office she can go to. <laughs> So, Bonnie, let's start by talking a bit about the mission at USAID. For those folks who are um, listening who may not know, what is USAID and what is the goal? Sure. It's a, it's a great question, and they would not be uh, in a minority. Most people don't know what USAID is. Uh, we probably have the best acronym in the U.S. government in that what we do is in our acronym. We are the United States Agency for International Development. But what does that actually mean? Uh, in the early days of the agency, say about 60 years ago, we're just about to hit 60 years, 
about 60 years ago, USAID was really focused on how do we bring food to people who are starving around the world? How do we physically transport large sacks of grain to communities in India or in sub-Saharan Africa? The mission of aid has changed and transformed along with the agency over the course of those 60 years. So uh, what we talk about now is working with countries as they travel along on their own journeys to self-reliance. The goal of foreign assistance is to end the need for its existence, mm -hmm. essentially to work ourselves out of jobs. The day that USAID doesn't exist is the day that we have hit true success, that the need no longer exists in the world. But for now, we're here and we focus now in a 21st century way on how we deliver assistance and what that assistance looks like. So it's less about delivering large sacks of grain and more about working with countries to develop new types of grain that they can plant in their fields that are more productive or more resistant to drought or more resistant to pestilence. These are the innovations that came about as part of the Green Revolution in the late 40s and early 50s. And we are part of institutionalizing that in countries around the world. But beyond just feeding people, what does it mean for a society really to be self-reliant? And to be self-reliant, it means that there is employment, that the pressure to migrate to other countries is not there, that there are reasons to stay home and there are reasons to uh, train your children, teach your children, build your families. And there are reasons for governments to treat their citizens responsibly, democratically, to allow for freedom of expression, freedom of religion, uh, freedom of the press. These are all the types of human rights focused areas where USAID also spends a lot of time. And then lastly, Laura, what is really my passion at USAID is bringing the agency into the 21st century with technology. Mm. So I've been here for just under two years, and during that time we launched a digital strategy prior to COVID, so timing could not have been better. We launched a strategy that allows us to work with countries to develop their own tools for transforming their economies with a lens toward digital first. I have a problem. What is the easiest way to solve this problem, potentially with the use of technology? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> I, the timing, as I said, was perfect. Right. We, uh, we're sitting now in a world, we're operating in a, over 100 countries, and we're communicating like this. I wish I was in person with you, but reality is such that we're all teleworking. Mm -hmm. We're all in a virtual world, and we've in, uh, introduced the concept of the need for digital tools to countries all over the world, and we're helping them reach that digital capability space. 
Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about how COVID has affected the overall mission. I mean, it's great that you were at, had the foresight, obviously, to think about technology and the role that it would play. No one quite saw this coming, I would say, but, but nevertheless, let's talk a bit about how your work has changed and evolved over this period of eight, nine months, how it looks different, and, and how you did that. How did you pivot your team um, and sort of what does the function look like now in this particular yeah. environment? It is, it is nuts, right? That whoever imagined that we'd be in this place. The, the good news is we're working with countries now to uh, adapt to the new environment. No one has the expectation that we'll have a cure for COVID in the near term. What we're looking for now is uh, the ability around the world, including here in the United States, to flatten the curve and to address the outbreak stages of COVID. One of the things that we've done is we've sent uh, ventilators to dozens of countries all over the world. When the outbreak first happened, and again, it's hard to remember back to February, March, when there was a shortage of this new acronym that no one knew, PPE. Right. Uh, personally protective equipment, the masks that we're now all using, or the protective gowns that are worn by people in hospitals, patient care, things like that. There was a global shortage of that. Well, there was also a global shortage of ventilators, those huge machines that help people to, you, you stick a tube down somebody's throat so that they're able to breathe uh, through a machine when they can't breathe on their own. These are, they, they were in short supply worldwide, including in the United States. The, the U.S. Agency for International Development teamed with the entirety of the U.S. government. It was really a remarkable effort to pull together the manufacturing capability through contracting out to great American manufacturers to build ventilators and to have them roll off of assembly lines so that they could reach hospitals primarily in the United States hospitals and clinics here, but then so that we could make occasional breaks in the manufacturing lines and send pallets of ventilators around the world and to, to save people's lives very directly. Now we've, we've exhausted much of the need for ventilators around the world and we're turning our attention to shipping oxygen. So uh, we're sitting here today and the President of the United States has uh, gotten COVID. Uh, patients were over uh, seven or eight million people in the United States who have so far tested positive with COVID. A lot of those patients require supplemental oxygen to help them to breathe. Uh, we're now working with countries around the world to fill needs for the delivery of oxygen to patients uh, who in countries where they don't have uh, an excess supply to be able to provide to patients, again, for saving lives. The, we're working really hard to stabilize 
the environment worldwide so that as the curve flattens, we can then begin to roll out vaccinations around the world. Uh, I think that all of us in the United States feel that we'll be a lot safer uh, when there's a COVID vaccine. And uh, we know, as we've seen from COVID, that we're not safe here if countries around the world aren't safe. The virus is coming from somewhere. And so it doesn't know any boundaries. Once we're vaccinated here in the United States, we'll also want to see that uh, people around the world, beginning with first-line responders, but then moving into vulnerable populations, and then the general population will have access to good vaccines to help protect them, the global population. Right. In addition to that, the economic impact of COVID has just been extraordinary. And I know you announced a, I believe it was a global initiative, something like $122 million investment for women's empowerment. And that's not just a government initiative, that's a public-private partnership. Can you talk a little bit about that and why the focus on women, which I love, of course, but I'd love for you to, to talk about why that's so important. So uh, I love it too. And I think it is so important for so long, 50% of the world's population has not been an equal player at the table when it comes to e uh, engagement economically. And so one of the initiatives of the Trump administration has really been led by Ivanka Trump and she has championed the role of women's economic empowerment in the administration's agenda. And she stood up uh, a program called WGDP, the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. And we have used this at USAID to work with companies around the world, multinational corporations, largely based in the United States, to help us leverage small dollar amounts of US taxpayer money, leveraging 10X or more corporate funding to bring uh, economic development opportunities to women in developing countries in emerging markets. An example of this that I like a lot is a partnership that we formed with Pepsi. Uh, and Pepsi is co-financing with us a program to support women farmers in India to grow a strain of potatoes. Now people might think, what? That's, that's not Pepsi, is it? But Pepsi owns Frito-Lay, and it has a, an enormous snack line. And so growing potatoes that can then be used as part of the global food supply chain for the production of Frito-Lay products or other products uh, will be valuable for women for economic development and economic prosperity in India. These are the kinds of projects that we have with companies all over the world and with a focus on making sure that women are at the financial table and at the economic growth table. Bonnie, I'd love for you to just pivot a bit and talk uh, about how you got involved in this work. 
both in foreign in, in diplomacy as well as in um, humanitarian relief. What was it early on in your career that really inspired you? So uh, I come from a big family. We're four kids and we're really close in age. Uh, four kids in five years and I'm number two. And my older brother was two years ahead of me in school and when we were both in college, he talked about this thing, the foreign service exam. And he said, it's an exam for the State Department to become an American diplomat and nobody passes this exam. And you know, my roommate took this exam, he didn't pass. This other super smart guy who was on Jeopardy took the exam, he didn't pass. So nobody passes it. Okay, sibling rivalry kicks in a little bit. And uh, I decided in my senior year of college that I would take this foreign service exam. I was studying international relations. I was fascinated by what was then called the superpower rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. I'm dating myself. Now we call it the great power competition, which is more of a strategic competition with China. But I took the foreign service exam and lo and behold, I passed. Nobody could believe it. <laughs> And so I went on to join the State Department as an American diplomat. And it is something that I recommend to all young people uh, at early stages in their careers if they're interested in doing hands-on American uh, diplomacy. It's a great opportunity and an enormous honor to be able to represent your country in other countries around the world. During the course of time, things happen. I met this really great guy, and we were commuting between our overseas assignments in Ethiopia, where I was, and Pakistan, where he was. Wow. Not terribly convenient. <laughs> uh, and uh, we decided that we would get married, and we eloped in Ethiopia so that we could then have our next assignment in the same country. We served together in Nicaragua and came back then to the United States to begin our family. Mm -hmm. um, and foreign service officers, American diplomats, staff the State Department, uh, but they also staff a number of agencies in Washington, including the White House uh, and including um, opportunities to work on Capitol Hill and in the Congress. And uh, I was working in the White House um, when our American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania were bombed. And this was in 1998. And I know most Americans don't remember this because it was really far away and, and so remote. But uh, my husband lost one of his classmates on that day. And uh, she left behind two little girls. And at the time, we had just one really little, cute two-year-old. And we looked at each other and said, maybe this overseas life isn't what we want to be doing permanently. And so we made decisions to transition. He ended up going to work on Capitol Hill, working for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So still keeping with that international flavor. And I went to work for IBM. Mm -hmm. which I also thought would be a neat international thing. 
Uh, and it ended up being a, a great opportunity but for both of us. Uh, we had another child, another son along the way, equally as cute, of course, can't judge. And I worked at IBM initially doing stuff mostly in the United States, but then toward the end of my time at IBM, I really, my kids were a little bit bigger and I could spend more time traveling and I really jumped back into the international realm and also knew for me into deep technology and started working in IBM's research labs uh, around the world, principally in Brazil, but also engaging at the time they had 12 global labs. And I learned so much in probably the most humbling period of my life. I didn't study uh, technology, engineering, computer science. I studied Russian. Uh, and so it, it wasn't a skill that was going to take me very far in a room full of PhDs in particle physics. But what I learned was one, courage, two, humility, and three, that learning to speak about technology was really very similar to learning a foreign language. Yeah. And so harnessing that discipline, I learned about technology and the latest breaking things in uh, research and development and absolutely loved my time working at IBM. Yeah. Okay. I want you to drill down into a, to a couple different elements of what you just said. And one in particular is this notion of courage, right? You couldn't have done these things without a pretty, pretty healthy degree of courage a desire to take a risk, a willingness to take a risk, not knowing exactly how things were going to turn out. But talk about where the courage came from. Talk about advice for how do you, how do you find that within yourself? What was it that motivated you to overcome what presumably was a little bit scary? Yeah, no, you're, that is a great question. Uh, I, I probably haven't thought about it too deeply other than that there was sort of this imperative uh, that I had to do something. And I, we had these two little kids and I wanted to do something that didn't take me, at least initially, too far from home. And IBM had an office very close by our close by our home. I joined IBM via an MBA. I figured I was leaving the State Department. It was a comfort zone. I wanted to go into industry and didn't know entirely how to make that transition. And figured education is always a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, halfway through my MBA, I, I was approached by IBM to stay. Uh, and they were extremely generous and let me finish my uh, MBA part-time while I worked full-time for IBM. And it, that gave me an element of confidence, certainly, that a company like that saw something in me. But I'm going to say what really did it was the woman who hired me. She even said to me, you're not a good fit for IBM. You're a square peg, we're a round hole, but you're smart. And I know that we will find a way to make that fit work because we need you here. 
Interesting. Wow. Yeah. What an amazing sort of uplifting and confidence building thing that she did for me. And I've looked at that so many times over the years and gone back to that very conversation where, you know what, this might sound like a crazy thing to do, but I'm going to do it and jump in both feet in the water and make it work. Mm -hmm. And somehow the, with the courage and with a healthy dose of humility, <laughs> I, you're, you're able then to, to tackle the naysayers. Um, she was very straightforward and, and really in that moment let me know that people will question, mm. are you able to do this? Your job is to show them that you're able to do this. Mm. And it meant the world to me, still does. Yeah. How did you deal with the naysayers? I mean, did they, did they materialize in the way that she predicted? And how did you handle that? So I, I think the way to, to, um, uh, to handle naysayers is to disarm them. Mm. Uh, because anyone in any venue will, will have a preconceived notion of what you're capable of doing. Exceeding those initial expectations is incredibly disarming to people who who, who might otherwise question your credibility or your credentials. Uh, it, it is hard. I used to joke that I would be the only non-PhD in the room and, you know, from the start say, hey, I get it. I'm, I'm the stupid one here. And I would have an army of PhDs then saying to me, that's crazy. You're the one who's able to translate us to the rest of the world. So you're actually the most valuable player here. But again, allowing for the strengths that I brought to the table, mm -hmm. which might have seemed odd initially, were things that I was then able to leverage. Yeah. You know, it really goes to this notion of knowing your value and seeing the role that you can play. You hit on several things there. One was self-deprecation. Um, you know, having, having that humility, that, that self-deprecation to say that I don't know all the answers, even though you were plenty smart and had every right to be there and people clearly recognize that quickly. But it's, it's this notion of knowing how to translate those skills and what you know to fit a, or to fill a need. What advice do you have for people as they're thinking about, maybe it's a career transition, maybe it's moving into a different role within an existing organization. How, how would you advise them to think about that notion of personal value and finding that niche? You know, Laura, that is a great and really, really hard question. Uh, and it's a particularly hard question for women. Uh, I think that so often uh, we set ourselves up to limit our own expectations, both of ourselves as well sometimes as uh, of others. And, uh, and men don't. <laughs> so, you know, little known secret, um, when we go into an environment and are not comfortable in the setting, we let people know we're not comfortable, whether it's through body language or through our even just upfront saying, I'm not comfortable in this environment. Mm 
Uh, men don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they power through successful men mm-hmm. uh, or whatever one perceives as successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that when women come to the table, you know, probably every woman talks about the impact that Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, had on them, but it really is so true. Leaning in, taking a seat at the table, uh, it, knowing that you have every much as, uh, as much of a right to be at that table as every other man who is around the table is empowering to women. So what do I do? I invite people to the table. And it's almost always women I'm inviting to the table because the men have already taken their seats there. So having, and I look back again to that interview at IBM with a woman who says, "You're, you're not the right fit. And I look at women today and say to them, you need to make yourself the right fit and you have to bring that credibility to the table as to why you're the right fit. I have, I've had so many younger women uh, who have worked with me, uh, who have come up to me and said, I want to be like you. And, and that's such an enormous, truly an enormous compliment. Uh, and I say, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, look at where you are professionally. And I say, well, you know, there, there's some mileage on these legs here, and it, it hasn't all happened overnight. And, you know, it does take time, and it does take perseverance, but it also takes mentors. And having this ability to, as, you know, a young woman coming to me saying, I want to be like you, that is an invitation to me to say, well, why don't we have a conversation about it? And what do you look at when you're looking for a mentor? A mentor isn't necessarily somebody who's going to offer you a job. A mentor is going to offer you visibility into how the world sees you, maybe, Mm -hmm. Uh, and where there might be good fits for you. Uh, And you shouldn't have just one mentor. They shouldn't all be women. Uh, You know, you need to have a, a broad perspective on what are the things I can do And what are the things that maybe I should do to get to my next step? And so I don't know if that answers the question about the self-deprecation and the Mm -hmm. humility, but I I do think that having an amount of confidence that isn't overbearing, because we also suffer from that, Mm -hmm. uh, but having the the self-assuredness that, you're supposed to be sitting at that table and people are supposed to be listening to you because you have really good things to say is extremely empowering. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite mentor stories, and I've probably told this on the podcast, although I don't remember specifically doing it, so I'll just tell it because it's very relevant here. But I was working at the Treasury Department and I had this habit, similar to what you just described, of saying, 
I'm sorry. I know I don't know as much as you guys do about credit default swaps or whatever the, whatever the issue happened to be. It was something I knew nothing about. <laughs> and I would raise my hand, <laughs> both raise my hand and apologize typically before I would say anything. And this friend of mine who was a peer who became a mentor to me pulled me aside and said, why do you do, he was a man, obviously. Why do you do that? I said, well, obviously. He's like, no, 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 not obvious. Like no one thinks that you're stupid or don't belong there until you're the one who sort of opens your mouth and, and sort of plants that seed. And I'm like, wow, that's, a, that's amazing, right? It was an eye-opening experience for me, but it goes to the power of mentorship. And also, you know, there's a role for self-deprecation, right? As long as you're not diminishing yourself in the process, right? Correct. I want to circle back to another another thing that you said about the discomfort that you can feel in putting yourself out there. And, you know, there are different points of view about this idea of, quote unquote, fake it till you make it. And I, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think about that. I mean, to me, it's not about pretending you're something that you're not. It's more it's more plowing through the discomfort, but I'd love for you to talk a bit about kind of what the mindset is as you're in, you know, feeling this internal discomfort and yet going ahead and doing whatever it is anyway. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's like an adrenaline rush, uh, but that's probably because I'm inherently an extrovert. I think about people who are a little more introverted and how some of the things that I do must sit with them. Like, how in the world did you do that? How did you land up doing Laura Cox Kaplan's podcast? Oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> You're too nice. <laughs> but in seriousness, it, it is something that uh, people – inherently it's human nature to be risk averse and I don't I agree with you it's not an issue of fake it till you make it it's really an issue about being the one who takes that step and says I, I'm gonna try this I'm gonna step outside my comfort zone is that okay for me uh, I I personally don't believe in safe spaces uh, I think that uh, life isn't about being safe. Life is about trying things and uh, experimenting safely. Right. Uh, Learning and growing. Yeah. Growing, exactly. And so in this job in particular, I've traveled to countries that I'd never been to before. Countries that when I was growing up, many of them didn't even exist as independent countries. And I see in people everywhere where USAID operates that they are grateful to the United States. And that makes it very easy for me to take certain steps because you're on friendly territory, but also you're representing what is a good. Uh, one of the things that I love about USAID is it's a 24-7, 365 good news story. This year, it's 366 days. And <laughs> <At least>. the, <laughs> work that, <laughs> the work that we do impacts people positively. Mm -hmm. 
And those people don't want to be shy about it. I recently did a, a live stream with a woman in South Africa who, because of COVID, is making masks uh, out of beautiful South African typical cloth uh, and selling them in pharmacies around the country and making money. And she is bringing in more and more and more seamstresses to help her in this effort. And I knew that I was going to be doing this uh, live stream with her. And uh, I brought something special with me to the live stream. My mom has pulled out her sewing machine and has been making masks for her four kids and nine grandkids and has been sending us masks and I pulled one out that she recently sent to my husband who loves to sail. And it was a reversible sailing themed mask. And during the course of the, the webcast, I pulled it up and I put it on and you could see the light in her eyes just shine because how exciting that we had this moment of connection. and. Again, I'm not an introvert, so maybe someone more introverted would have stuck to some very precise boundaries of what the conversation is supposed to be like. But when you bring people in, you create not just the bonds between you, but you create really a message that resonates, especially in virtual world, to a much larger community. And I find that to be very inspiring. Yeah, it's very inspiring. And it's very much something that's, it's mission driven. It's something that answers the question of why you're doing this work. Yeah, so true. Uh, if I didn't love it, uh, I, it, it would be a burden. But again, you can't really knock a 24-7 good news story. You're doing good out there. We have amazing people all around the world. We're about 11,000 people in the agency who are helping people through this COVID crisis as well as in their development journey. It's amazing, Laura. Yeah, yeah absolutely. My guess is much of your work while inspiring and mission-driven can be slow. It can be slow to see change take place. How do you stay motivated and focused on a project, an initiative, a goal that may be taking a bit longer, or maybe you're having to weather multiple setbacks, failure, maybe not setbacks, let's say. Um, how do you stay focused and how do you stay engaged without letting it demoralize you? You know, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a different category because I have a calendar that is so booked with a million different one, a million and one different things every single day that my brain is sort of constantly firing. But I'm going to give you a neat example. Uh, in 2003, President Bush, 43, set up a program because we saw here in the United States how HIV AIDS was devastating the uh, America. Our populations uh, had been, particularly in certain population groups, 
uh, gay men, hemophiliacs, and immigrants from certain countries had been in an outsized way impacted by AIDS. And it, it hurt him to the core. The other person it really hurt was his mother. And Barbara Bush traveled to an African country and was sort of impromptu handed a baby uh, who had AIDS. And she embraced this child. And it took the world by storm because it was, here's the, the first lady, former first lady of the United States holding a baby whose days are limited probably. Very iconic and, photograph of that moment. Amazing, yes. And for President George W. Bush, he saw it as a moral imperative of the United States to save the world from HIV AIDS. And he stood up, and AID has been running since, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Emergency. Uh, it truly was a global emergency particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where you had countries that had HIV positive rates in the 80 percentages. 80% of a country showing HIV positive rates was mind-boggling. Right. And so President Bush stood up this emergency plan and funded it initially with close to $50 billion of taxpayer dollars to say, we in the United States see this as a moral imperative. We're sitting here now, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, has been funded on several cycles now through Congress, generously donated uh, from the American people. And we have saved countless millions of lives around the world through that intervention. How do you look at something and say, you're here because of US, someone, you're here because of USAID? You don't say that. You can't say that to a teenager who wasn't even alive when this started. But I know in my mind that we have saved societies and countries from, uh, really catastrophic impacts that could have been the case. And we've done it over time. We've done it over in a measured way through incredible generosity from the American people. And so you look at that, Laura, and say, sometimes there are slow days. Some days I haven't saved 10 million people's lives. But over the course of history, the United States has saved tens of millions of people's lives because we've been there, because we've responded, and because we've seen the need and had the ability to say, I stand up and I take responsibility for this, I'm going to do that because I represent the United States. And it's an incredibly uh, honorable thing for us to have done as a nation. Yeah, I mean, talk about, a beautiful definition of impact and what it means. Really beautiful. 
I would love to ask you one final question. Maybe if you could give us a single piece of advice, a life hack or a mantra. It could be something maybe that you wished your wish younger Bonnie would have known as she was just starting out, or maybe something you tell your boys. What what would yours be? There's a, a great book, and I'm gonna get the title wrong probably. But it, it was a book that my kids got when they were little, and it was called something like The Dangerous Book for Boys, something like that. <laughs> uh, and they came out then subsequently, there was a whole hue and cry that there wasn't a similar book for girls. Uh, and they came out with another book called The Dangerous Book for Girls or, or something akin to that. And, uh, and it's about taking risks. And it's about a smart approach to trying new things. And for boys it's, or, or girls, it's things like go camping, uh, learn to swim, learn to, uh, learn to sail, um, explore the great outdoors. And I, I think that having that approach that it's good to take risks it's good to bound them, uh, but without that, you'll you'll do fine. Uh, you'll do just fine. But will it be exciting? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but if what you're looking for is a is a meaningful exposure to exciting changes, uh, you're not going to get there without being willing to take to take important risks. Yeah, beautiful. Bonnie, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Laura, this was such a pleasure for me. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, I really, really loved it. It's great to get to know you and thank you for your service and your incredible work. Thank you too. To learn more about USAID Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 121. Remember friends, you'll always find amazing tools, advice, and perspective to help you become the best version of yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends via social media and be sure to tag me at Laura Cox Kaplan. I'd also love to hear any feedback that you have. What resonated with you? What would you like for us to talk more about? I'd love for you to share that with me. Send me a note through the website contact me link or DM me on Instagram at Laura Cox Kaplan. Until next time, take care and thanks so much for listening.